Welcome to New Atlas Live. I'm Brian Berletic. Joining me as always is Angelo Giuliano, but also joining me is, uh, as you can see, Gonzalo Lira and Alex from Reportify Media. And uh, all three have a background in either finance, banking, investment, or, or a little bit of everything. And so we're going to be talking about what is going on with all of these banks, uh, what is going on with de-dollarization, and how this is all connected to, I think, not just the, the, the ongoing proxy war with Russia and Ukraine, but also this buildup uh, by the U.S. against China. Uh, and so without further ado, how about we just, um, I'm going to go clockwise, go to Gonzalo, just lay things out as you see it right now, and then Angelo, and then Alex, uh, you guys can build on top of what the other says uh, or or add 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 whatever you think is relevant. Let's just get a, an introduction going. Gonzalo? Yeah, hi. First of all, thank you so much, Brian, for having me on. And Angelo and Alex. Angelo, it's great to see you again. Alex, I don't think that you and I have interacted before. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, great, great to see you. So, uh, thank you. So what we have is we are seeing what looks like a, a bank run of some sort uh, because we've had two banks that have folded, um, that have declared bankruptcy in the United States over the last week. Also, last week, the Federal Reserve um, <laughs> created, magicked $300 billion worth of available cash to buttress any uh, American bank that might be in trouble. Uh, in Europe, we have Credit Suisse that has been, you know, sort of like teetering for a couple of years now. All of a sudden, it, it's, its stock price has tanked, which usually signals in a financial institution that the people in it and around it and their counterparties kind of know that the jig is up insofar as Credit Suisse is concerned. Uh, and so the um, Swiss Central Bank has propped it up to the tune of, I think it was $54 billion, um Swiss francs, which is roughly 50, I mean, it's almost exactly, there's almost parity between the, the franc and the dollar, uh, or last I checked at any rate. And, uh, and so, you know, yeah, it looks like this weird little crisis. A lot of people are saying that this is the Lehman moment because the, the a bankruptcy of Le, uh, Lehman Brothers back in 2008 set off the global financial crisis of two, 2008. Uh, I'm not so sure. I tend to think that this is more like the Bear Stearns moment because prior to Lehman, Bear Stearns, another investment bank, it went tits up. Um, I actually can't recall if it was in, in March, April of 2008 or 2007, you know, because it bleeds into me, into my memory. But anyway, the point is, see, nobody's quite sure if this is the canary in the coal mine or this is the start of the big one. And so it's all very fluid at this moment. Um, my thinking personally, because I personally am not invested in, in, in the financial sector in the West at all. I'm just watching this as a spectator. Okay. Because, uh, back in 2016, I retired. And as I started seeing that the uh, Western financial system was grossly over leveraged and that things were eventually going to tank. I figure, you know, my sleep is more precious than being up at night worrying about how the markets are doing or how banks are doing. And so I just pulled out and I'm in very pedestrian investments that just keep me sleeping soundly at night. But uh, I'm sure that the central banks around the world, none of them are sleeping soundly. 
because this does seem to be the start of something big. Paradoxically, the Russians uh, are pretty much uh, isolated from this whole kerfuffle, financially speaking, because of the sanctions. Because due to the sanctions and the abrupt financial divorce between the West and Russia, Russia really doesn't have any more exposure to the West, apart really from what was sanctioned back in February, March of 2022. And so they're going to be just watching this and just like shrugging because to them, it's not going to affect them at all. And on top of that, of course, their financial system is sound. Uh, we can see that over the last year. It's perfectly sound. Um, uh, El Gugolina is running the Russian central bank extremely tightly and very, very, very capably. And so nothing is going to happen as far as the Russians are concerned. And so far as the West is concerned, that is a different story. Angelo, uh, have, is, anything I say is a lie or untrue? No, absolutely. Uh, uh, well, well, just to jump in, Angelo, you made a very interesting tweet uh, today about your. You have a background in Suisse, is that correct? Oh, yeah. I used, I used to. I'm a financial analyst. I used to be uh, to do auditing, controlling as well. So I was in uh, Credit Suisse uh, first, Boston, uh, and I, I have also a background also in uh, in the hedge fund industry. So I've been I've been around those uh, banksters. I know the culture. And I think I think we we should we should go back to I mean what did we learn from 2008 and where we are now and why those bankers are still behaving the same? What is happening right now? We have those bankers that are what we call too big to fail. So in the case of Credit Suisse, you know we have two big banks in Switzerland. We have a UBS and Credit Suisse. They're too big to fail. Uh, they have one pressure: is return on investment. On the other side is that what happens is that if they fail, they can, they can take bets. If they fail, the government is there backing them up. So it's a vicious circle. Now you have the uh, Swiss National Bank, which is pulling funds, but are, they are going to repeat that unless we, we change the way they operate. You see, the problem is that we are shifting. We have shifted. What was the origin of banks in the old days? What was lending money for for, for people was also to transfer. You know, originally uh, the Rothschild was, was a good way. You know, it was a fantastic way to transfer money from one country to another. Now it's only profit driven. And this is what the, the, the collective West is suffering. It, you know, and we are repeating the same mistakes. What is going to happen? You're putting $50 billion, but at the end of the day, you have the same personality, the, the same type of people that are, that are leading those banks. What they're driven, they're driven by short-term gains. You know, if you are a CEO of a bank like Credit Suisse, you know, you have bonus which are linked to the performance of you, your stock. And, and, and you have bonus based on that. How, uh, and, and uh, how the stock goes up is that, you know, you need to have high return on investment. And that's how they do. Uh, so you have to, to minimize the investment. The, you you skin in the game. That's what we call the investment. You know, skin the game, and you have the, the maximum return. But when you have this high leverage, you take extremely very high high risk. And who's paying the risk? It's the you know it's it's we socialize the 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 the, the profit. You know, this is it, it's it's so disgusting. You see. Uh, the world, the world we're in right now is that when you, a company makes profits, it becomes privatized. When it makes losses, 
is socialized, you know. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not for, you know, I'm not for nationalizing banks and so on. But in this, in the case of a, a bank which is too big to fail, well, you, I think at this stage, you know, uh, well, maybe nationalize it or you dismantle it because the problem is that uh, this, 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 uh, what we call in the, in the U.S. glass and steel, you know, you separate commercial bank and investment bank. You know, they should be completely separate because, yeah. you know, and you, so you, you have to compartmentalize the, the, those banks. I have a, a point to add to what Angelo is saying. You see, in 2008, in the global financial crisis, you see the problems, uh, the fundamental systemic problems of banks were not solved, especially what he was referring to, which was the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which separated investment banking from commercial banking. Uh, that was repealed during the Clinton administration. I do believe the second uh, administration by his uh, uh, his Treasury Secretary at the time, Robert um, Robert uh, Rudy, Rudy, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, he uh, repealed it, and uh, Robert Rudy was a banker from Goldman Sachs. And of course, it became incredibly banking became incredibly lucrative starting at that point because of the repeal of this law because. It allowed investment banks to place it, basically play with the money that they had accrued from commercial banking. They were able to play with it in investment. That is, you know, uh, playing the stock market. I mean, I'm simplifying it because there are whole asset classes, but it, it allowed the, the, the merging of the two monies between investment banking and commercial uh, banking. And this has proven to be a disaster. The reason Glass-Steagall was implemented during the Depression was prior to the Depression, that had been the case with the banks, that they were investing, i.e. betting, with the money of their customers. And so once those customers all of a sudden sudden required liquidity, these banks collapsed because they didn't have the liquidity on hand to, to service the liabilities. And so to move forward to 2008, what happened was that Glass-Steagall was not re-implemented, but rather it remained out. And the system, rather than let the banks fail and and recapitalize them, renew them, and separate them, what the U.S. government basically did is that they threw money at the problem. They created money out of thin air by way of quantitative easing. They threw money at the problem to ameliorate the problems of liquidities of the banks, and they just kept on marching on, and nobody was held responsible. In fact, the same people who are in charge now, people like Jamie Dimon, they were in charge back in 2008. Uh, you know, the, the, the group of Janet Yellen, uh, um, uh, uh, Kashkari, all that, that whole crowd, they're still around. They still have influence. And so they never learned the lesson of 2008. And so we're having a repeat, I think, of 2008 only on a much, much bigger scale. And we have a war and we have a pandemic or, you know, whatever. We have too many problems. It's all happening simultaneously. Yeah, we, we, I want to get into all of that. Um, Alex, what, what is your, uh, your initial, uh, introduction? Uh, how do you see all of this? Well, once again, thank you for having me on the program, Brian. I greatly appreciate it. And what a great panel. I'm blessed to be here. Um, first of all, I'm going to say a little bit of a disclaimer that this is not, um, an endorsement to buy or sell any securities. Just going to put that out there. First of all, um, I'm a uh, professional derivatives trader, have been for two decades. Uh, lived in Monte Carlo for almost 20 years as well. Uh, lived through the financial crisis in 2008 there. And I will tell you, not one single person in the Principality of Monaco, which is filled with a lot of wealth, a lot of yachts, a lot of billionaires and a lot of millionaires. There was 
celebration going on in 2008. There wasn't a, a moment of sadness at that time. What I would like to talk about today when we go into more depth is my analogy of this financial market. I'm almost convinced about 70 to 80% of all publicly traded companies on the S&P, S&P 500, that's the top 500 companies by market cap in the United States, are worthless. And I'll pass it back over to you, Brian. Well, okay, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's. <laughs> Alex is right. <laughs> yes, you you can add on to that. But I what I want to do now is I want to talk about uh, the, the the conflict in Ukraine, this proxy war, uh, the sanctions that the U.S. and the EU together attempted to destroy the Russian economy with, which didn't really work. What what impact is that having on? The, is there any connection at all between that? Totally. And totally. so, okay, so uh, let's explain it again. Let's go clockwise and uh, uh, Gonzalo, you start. Okay, I, I, by the way, I really want to hear Alex' take on, on this. I'll give an analysis and Alex, you, you tell me if I'm, if I'm on the mark or not, because <laughs> this is what happened. The, the West wanted to sanction Russia because, you know, if, if all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so they thought that they would sanction Russia uh, no different than the sanctions, uh, you know, piddly ass economies or relatively trivial economies such as Cuba or Venezuela or Iran even, even though Iran is a fairly large country. But still, economically, insofar as the West is concerned, it was not that big of a deal and it had been sanctioned since the time of the Shah of Iran. So, you know, flew to that. But the thing is, see, Russia is a determining player in the global commodities markets, you know, whether you like it or not. They are the the second, I believe, uh, largest exporter of oil in the world, uh, natural gas, uh, wheat commodities, uh, all kinds of uh, precious metals and all the rest of it. I mean, insofar as commodities are concerned, they are a huge player. And so to sanction them, to cut them off from the West would automatically and very predictably drive up the price of commodities, commodities that the modern Western economy depends on. Okay? So when they sanctioned Russia and you know started shutting down the energy resources, natural gas, oil to the West, this automatically drove up those prices because, of course, the Russians didn't lose a customer in, 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 a, in a dollar sense because they just pivoted to India and China. And, uh, you know, they started selling their oil to those customers and others as well. And what happened was that the same amount of oil was started, started uh, Russian oil started flowing back to uh, Europe but marked up because it was going through intermediaries and other processes that are more complex but are not interesting for this conversation. You just take my word for it, but everybody agrees. And so this drove up the price of oil, most especially. Now, of course, especially in the United States, everything depends on oil because the United States is such a large country. You have to transport your goods or your foodstuffs, everything, TVs, whatever. You have to transport them by truck. And so inevitably that higher energy prices transferred to those products, irrespective of other problems going on. And so this has led to widespread inflation in the West. In Europe, it's particularly acute. It's comfortably in the double digits across the Eurozone. Insofar as the United States is concerned, you know, the, the CPI number, I'm, I'm very dubious about it. I follow uh, John Williams at Shadowstats. Shadowstats.com, which is a great site 
to follow the actual CPI number. That's a different problem. But the thing is, see, inflation in the United States rose precipitously. It's come down a little bit, but it's still up there. And um, and so what happens with this inflation, the Federal Reserve became extremely nervous for justified reason, because it started looking as if this uh, transitory inflation was just going to accelerate. And so they started hitting the gas insofar as interest rates, because the uh, Federal Reserve, which is the U.S. central bank, determines short-term lending rates by way of its Fed funds rate, which is the money that it lends to banks overnight. And that is the mechanism by which the Fed controls the interest rate um, of, across all the, the, the different lending products that banks have. And by raising interest rates rather abruptly, coupled to the fact that the Biden administration pumped out so much money um, at the beginning of its term in order to prop up an economy that all was already going up, but they put in even more cash. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. And so all of a sudden, the Federal Reserve, by way of its interest rate policy, decided to try to you know, extinguish that fire a little bit, that inflationary fire. And so this created market distortions and lack of predictability insofar as uh, the bond market, specifically treasury bonds, which all of a sudden have become toxic assets. And so um, toxic assets in the sense that you, there are assets you don't want to hold because you're going to wind up losing a great deal of money. And so th- th- this is the problem that's going on. Okay, This has been incompetent monetary policy by way of what the Biden administration promised and also by way of the sanctions imposed on Russia that has created, I hate the term perfect storm, so I'm not going to use it, but it is the coincidence of several factors that has led to higher inflation requiring the Fed to hit the brakes on the economy by way of raising interest rates that caused uh, uh, basically all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under many banks, SVB, the Silicon Valley uh, Bank, that's that's the problem that happened to it. It caught on it got caught on the wrong side of its treasury bets, and so all of a sudden these banks need a bailout. I mean, you, you see the problem. The people who created the problem are not now trying trying to salvage the problem by the same thing that created the problem originally, which is printing money. Now they're going to print some more, and on top of this, this all was triggered by the fact that the sanctions were imposed on Russia that kickstarted this inflation. Uh, you guys, is this analysis yeah, well, of the money? Yeah, I, I just want to ask a real quick question and then, uh, you, you answer it very quickly and then pass to Angelo. Do you think that the, the confidence in the, the U.S. financial system, because a lot, a lot to do, especially with, uh, the dollar as a reserve currency, it has to do with confidence when they were seizing, uh, Russian assets, uh, the U.S., uh, the EU, Switzerland, I believe, was involved in this, at least oh, to yeah. an extent. Doesn't that also play a contributing factor to to at least maybe not triggering this, but accelerating it, making this problem even worse? Absolutely, because what happens is that foreign clients see how Russian assets are seized, and there is no war between the West and, and Russia. Okay, sequestership, which is the legal name for the term of seizing a foreign country's assets, it's only triggered, uh, it ought to be triggered at least by way of uh, an actual declaration of war. But there's no war between the West and uh, Russia. This was an arbitrary measure. It was frankly illegal. But because of this, uh, the level of confidence of foreign investors has been deeply shaken. 
the Chinese over the past year have sold off, uh, I think it's about a hundred billion dollars worth of, yeah, a hundred billion. Uh, I, I might get the number wrong or it might be a trillion. I, I forget the, the number at this point because the zeros are so many, but they've sold off their treasury bonds. And I know for a fact that, um, Chinese, uh, um, individual, uh, assets, in, individual Chinese investors and so forth. Uh, they are pulling money out of the West because they're scared. They're scared that, uh, war is declared on China. And just by virtue of being a Chinese citizen, they lose access to their own assets. And so they're pulling yeah. out of the West because of this. And they're investing this in, of course, China. And, um, something similar is happening with Russian oligarchs. In fact, Vladimir Putin, gave out in, in his speech um, uh, a couple of months ago, basically an open-ended invitation to Russian oligarchs to, you know, come back to Mother Russia, all will be forgiven, and you can invest your capital in the West that hates us, but here in Mother Russia where we love you. <laughs> and so, you know, this is a pulling out. And when the people that you go to to borrow money, the Chinese and the Russians and, and other countries, when those countries start no longer lending to you, because that's what's basically going on here, the, the, the Eurasian continent has been lending money to the West to maintain its lifestyle. When this happens, you know, it's, it's like when you hit the limit on your credit card, you know, the ceiling on your credit card, and you are no longer able to live the life that you have become accustomed to. This is happening. Angelo. Uh, Alex, Alex, do you want to answer to Gonzalo? Because I think the, the question was addressed to you. What, uh, what, uh, I think, I think it was related to, you know, the, uh, re, uh, interest rates. Uh, you, you, you want to yeah, add something? Yeah. yeah. And actually, Alex, I also want to, because you said that there was celebration. And is this, is yeah. this just because these, these people are like a parasite class and basically the bailout and everything was just, uh, the dinner bell basically for these parasites to keep <laughs> yeah. feeding? Well, I mean, capitalism in Monaco is not a dirty word, but we have to understand that the caliber of people that are down there, they are there for mostly tax structuring or the lack of no tax structuring. As you know, the taxes are not on the law of the books in Monaco, so you cannot be charged for tax evasion or tax avoidance because simply the law does not exist in Monaco. So most of these individuals are high net worth or pension funds or mutual funds or even uh, investment banks go there. Credit Suisse is located there. You know, EFG Bank is there. A lot of the really big banks. Now, what I meant by that comment, and I didn't want to, you know, really say that in a way that um, to refer to some of my friends that are still there as parasites, but I'll tell you that in the banking business, when there is an absolute catastrophe in the markets, on every trade, there's a winner and a loser. And on that trade in 2008, and we saw it again on February 15th, uh, seven minutes after the U.S. market opened uh, on – that was in 2018 on February 5th. Look at what happened to the market that day. That absolutely wiped out uh, many um, – we'll call it um, – uh, the best way I can say is a lot of people that were playing the option market. Within about four minutes, it wiped out probably, I would say hmm, – close to 90% of option traders in the United States with the blink of an eye. Now, jubilation, 2008, yes, there was, because when there's one door to get out on a market and everybody's running for the same door at the same time, there's a bid there, and that bid is going real low. 
And I'll give you an example. We look at these companies and we look at these banks. I mean, if you're a shareholder in Credit Suisse, once again, this is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. But when you're looking at Credit Suisse right now, when you pumped in $54 billion, that company's worthless to the shareholder. Look at SVB, shareholders wiped out. So let's start with the easy part to this market here. Grandma and grandpa that have pension plans or your relatives or whatever. Hello, Mr. Broker. I would like to buy stock ABC. Well, sure. Do you want to place a bid? Yes, I would. Uh, your offer has been accepted. That's granola. That's kindergarten trading 101. Okay. But behind that whole scene is a derivatives market that is playing against, against you. They're the house. And you are the little guy that comes in and you put your little chips on the table. Now, if they can wipe banks out in California and they can manage to pump in multi-trillion dollars into these S&P indexes uh, during even the, the uh, I'll call it pandemic, I won't use the C word, but during the pandemic and pump that much money in, well, that quantitative easing now has to be reversed and it's quantitative tightening now. So all that free money that was lent out at zero made its way into the system, inflated. Can you imagine this? And I'll hand it over to you in a second, Angelo. Stock prices going up in worldwide economies that are shut. Okay. Pretty much every country around the globe was closed and the market is rallying. Okay. That's one thing that you got to put into your books and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. It shouldn't. And it didn't. So, Fast forward is, is all this money now is, was in these public companies. Once again, back to 2008 example, jubilation, free money. Let's take it. Let's pump up our balance sheets. And now the money has been spent. It's going out into the system. It flooded the system, inflationary levels. And imagine this quote. This is a quote, everyone. We still think the economy is positive. So we are trying to slow it down. That was said by the chair of the Federal Reserve. What kind of person or country wants to slow its economy down? Now, you might say inflation. I'm sorry, but now we're seeing the results of the collapse of these banks because the quantitative tightening's coming in. This is not a bust. This is a super boom we're about to experience. I'll pass it over to you, Angelo. Thank you. Yeah, what, what is the source of the problem? I, I think uh, we have a huge problem, which is in terms of regulation. And who writes the regulation? Uh, the problem is that we take people from those banks, usually Goldman Sachs, you know, like people like Goldman, uh, like a Paulson, who was, uh, um, he was, what was his title? Uh, Treasury yeah, uh, Secretary. Uh, is an ex uh, Goldman Sachs. So we are giving to the banksters, we are giving them the 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 right to uh, write the rule of the games to protect ourselves against those same banksters. You see that it, it reminds me mm -hmm. of you know like uh, there are some uh, so-called democracies where we give we give the rules of the game, which is the 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 constitution that is supposed to protect us against the elites. We give the right to write those constitution to the elites. That's the same with banking, and that's the problem of revolving doors. So they are writing the rule of the games, and and and, and again, you know, we should be protecting from from those guys. And the pro and, and the problem is there's so much money inside this is that they can buy anyone. They can buy anyone from the SEC. You know, SEC. They take them from the SEC and they go to Goldman Sachs. 
uh, after some time, they go from Goldman Sachs and they go back to SEC. And, and that's a problem. I just want to add one thing. You know, that, that is related to the sanctions. And that is related to the, to the case of Credit Suisse. If we go, if we go just back like a, a week ago, a week ago, the situation of Credit Suisse in terms of liquidities, the ratios, according to the FIMA, which is the regulation, uh, regulatory uh, uh, body in Switzerland, and to the national bank, Swiss national bank, it was okay. There was not a major problem. Now, SEC comes and says, oh, you know what? We, we're not happy with that. Uh, you need to look back to look at, look at your reporting. So that single thing made, made the stock, the stock drop by 30%. That's one thing. Second thing we have right after you have the, uh, uh, credit notes, you know, the, the ones that gives the, the, the credit, the notes, you know, like morning stars, they, they drop the, the, the rating. Uh, I feel, I feel there's an attack directly or indirectly from the U.S. when it comes to, to Swiss banks. Why? It comes back, I'm going back to uh, the Swiss bank being forced to put sanctions on Russia and to seize, to freeze assets, Russian assets. So there was $20 billion that were frozen of uh, Russian assets. What happened right after that? You had lots of very wealthy individuals from Asia, from the Middle East, uh, from from everywhere, the global south, they saw that and they were like, we are no more safe with Swiss banks. Well, hundreds of billions left Swiss banks. So you have, if you'd add up all those elements, this is why you have the Credit Suisse, which is actually dropping, dropping so much. You know, because because the fundamentals of Credit Suisse, it was not dramatic. Now it's the perceptions. What happens is that the, the stock the stock went down, but that's this perception of the stock by investors. Uh, so I think I think it was just. Uh, I, I I think that this this work, you know, I think there's a, a, a invisible hand there, you know, of uh, maybe some manipulation there from the U.S. I mean, uh, just just the SEC. What the SEC did was extremely unfair. You know, when you hear that the company has problems with its reporting from the SEC, you can be sure the next day the stock drops by 30, 50%, especially if, if it's a bank. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's very serious when they come out and say something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, I, just, uh, I just want to point out... Go, go ahead, about Gonzalo. Swiss, sure. Yeah, about sure. Swiss banking. See, the, the problems with Swiss banking really started in 2012 um, when the Obama administration basically strong-armed the uh, Wegelin Bank, or Wegelin Bank, uh, which is a private bank in Switzerland, uh, strong-armed them into revealing their client list because they wanted to um, take care of uh, American uh, tax dodgers. And see, that's when the Swiss banking laws were corrupted. They were threatened. Wegelin Bank was threatened with removal from SWIFT, and so they had to. The, the Obama administration used the... Uh, international system that was based in the United States to pursue a short-term political agenda because the SWIFT had never been used as a threat against any bank in order to achieve some politically useful end for the United States government. See, the United States relentlessly pursued American tax dodgers in Switzerland, but they never resorted to this sort of blackmail, which the Obama administration was the first to do in 2012 against Begelin. And what happened that because of that, uh, Wegelin eventually went broke because of it. 
and uh, because everybody pulled out their money. And more to the point, the Swiss banking system uh, basically said, we will not take American customers anymore. Okay, that, that was their response. They, they acquiesced to the Americans on the one hand by revealing the names of all American citizens uh, that had accounts in Switzerland. But at the same time, they removed the problem by, by basically saying, we're not going to take American customers anymore because of this issue. Okay. And so therefore, you know, the, the American government, what's it going to say to Switzerland? Give me the name of other people on you, that on your client list. At that point, the Swiss, rather than start turning decisively away from uh, the, the Americans, at least, they kind of like continued on as if things were normal. But as Angelo said, that's when Swiss banking started going down the tubes because other countries started realizing, hey, you know, maybe the Americans will strong arm them again if I'm Saudi, if I'm Russian, if I'm Chinese, if I'm whomever of a targeted country or a targeted people. The American administration, which had, I mean, the United States created the SWIFT system in the post-war period and was a very useful system in terms of bank, banking messaging in order to transfer funds quickly. To Alex's point, which was the whole point of, um, or, or Angela's, I forgot, the, the point of, of like the Rothschilds transferring money from one country to the other. That was the point of it. It was a bedrock system that undergirded the American system of exporting its debt and bringing in foreign monies so as to live high on the hog by way of credit, which is what the United States and the West generally has been doing for the last 40 years. But see, by weakening SWIFT for short-term political gain, as the Obama administration did in 2012 and subsequently, and, and especially now with the sanctions, where the the Russian central bank's assets were frozen. I mean, this is major, right? And and Ursula von der Leyen is saying that they have to figure out a way legalistically to steal those assets and give them to Ukraine, which is the Zelensky regime are a bunch of corrupt uh, thugs, for crying out loud, right? Well, all of this makes the rest of the world lose confidence in the American system. And this is catastrophic for the uh, Americans and the West in general for two reasons. Number one, the West depends on uh, getting cash from the rest of the world to support its social welfare programs and its defense spending, number one. And number two, the rest of the world's economies are catching up. And in terms of purchasing power parity, uh, the rest of the world is larger than the West. And so, I mean, in nominal terms, perhaps not in purchasing power, uh, purchasing power parity, Yes, and by other more sophisticated measurements of an, econo- of an economy, most definitely. And so what you have is that the Americans, by a short-term approach to using the tools at hand, has weakened confidence in the rest of the world in the Western financial system. And so the only way out for the West, for the European Central Bank, the Swiss Central Bank, and most especially of all, the Federal Reserve, they're going to have to just print money and this money eventually is going to make its way into the real economy and you're going to have a loss of faith in the dollar. The dollar, in the path that we are going now, it is inevitable that it will hyperinflate and eventually become worthless. It is inevitable because this process that I've outlined, this is the exact same process that has happened in every country that has hyperinflated. 
They lose the ability to get credit from overseas for whatever reason. They start printing to make up the difference. And that printing works for a while until all of a sudden people start realizing, hey, these, the, this currency I have in my hand, it's really not worth anything. I can clean my butt with it, but little else because so much of it is floating around and sloshing around to, to, to shore up the liabilities that the financial sector has of this particular country. This is going to, this is going to happen unless radical measures are taken and there is no political will for those radical measures to be taken. And so we're going to see the crash of the euro and the dollar inevitably. Yes. And, and I'm glad you brought up SWIFT and it's uh, an ecosystem of processes, systems, the, the dollar, the way that money moves around. This has all been dominated by the West. But more recently, it's been weaponized by the West. And everyone is looking at each other and saying, well, they're doing it to Russia. We're pretty sure China's next. China's our biggest trade partner. This is, this is toxic. This is not a system that is, that is worth being a part of. And we saw uh, efforts to create alternatives for years and years now since, since this has all been going on. So we're, we're going counterclockwise. Uh, I want to throw this to Alex first. Sure. Um, you know, bank, banking and, uh, finance, this is all supposed to serve, serve the economy, but I, it feels as if people have hijacked it first, uh, almost to, to create a casino out of it, to, to create wealth out of doing nothing, uh, but also weaponizing it. And I think, uh, either one is bad enough, but they're doing both right now. And it almost seems desperate at this point, especially the weaponization. Uh, what do you, what do you think about that? And, uh, just because you're based in China, we, we were talking about Russia. What impact is this going to have on China, do you think? Well, that's a two-part question, so I'll answer the first part. First of all, banks don't really care about your deposits. It's very clear. Um, they don't need your deposits as well. Uh, just by the announcement uh, this morning that a lot of these banks are backstopped, uh, basically bail-ins, not really a necessary a bail-out, but it's a bail-in. So, for example... During the crisis, the banks just say, yep, been a bad boy, in a little bit of trouble, give me some cash. Money flows in there. Depositors, well, you're protected up to X amount of money in each country. Each country has their own kind of uh, protection. The average customer was pretty much you know, blown out of the banking business many years ago. You're just a person that is there to use their services, which you pay for, whether it's credit cards, at 1%, 3%, or whatever. Uh, that's all you are to a bank. The good old days when you used to take that jar of pennies and nickels in to get money and put it in your bank account and gain interest. Those are, that, that's a long gone. I mean, a great memory, a uh, beautiful thing to have. But how you can win against this is purchasing things like, and I'm, I'm going to sound like a gold bug here, but it's starting to make a lot more sense. I've been buying gold now for the last 14 years as much as I can, when I can averaging it out. And once again, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell anything, but all I'm going to say is that if you have something that you can hold that they're not going to lock the door on, you're not going to, somebody's not going to answer the phone. If you need to wire out money when banks are collapsing, can you imagine that? Why did not most of these Silicon Valley companies that had billions in these uh, accounts, Roku, Roku's just a, a general uh, we'll call it a high-tech company or maybe a streaming service. 26% of their uh, assets are sitting in a bank in cash. 
I mean, who is working uh, for for Roku in the compliance department where they could set some of these assets? And let me give you an idea of what I mean by that is if you have cash in the bank, yes, if a bank gets wiped out, it's gone. But if you have securities, stocks, not in the actual bank itself, but if you have securities, let's say in Microsoft or Apple or something like that, that cannot go to a creditor. That is a, a security which belongs to your name. So if a bank goes bust, if you still have your shares and stocks, those are in your name that's one way to protect it. So if you're sitting on a lump sum of money, try to find some of these stocks that uh, you know you will feel are going to be around the the next day. But like I said at the start of this uh, show here, is I am pretty much convinced most companies that took a large amount uh, amount of money uh, during the uh, we'll call it the pandemic uh, for free. Um, their balance sheets are pretty much worthless. And and to ask uh, to answer uh, uh, another comment for Angelo about the Securities and Exchange Commission, it's amazing at how many people don't use that free service, sec.gov. Open up, see what's wrong with the company. I was reading the balance sheet of uh, Credit Suisse four days ago when I was getting phone calls from my buddy saying, get ready, write as many short derivatives on this thing as you possibly can hammer it into an oblivion and i can tell you all these options expired at 12 noon today in europe look at the timing on that okay and i'll talk to you guys later about what i do and you know i don't own one single share of any publicly traded company and i'll get into that later the second part of your question um you wanted to answer brian can you just um uh, sure throw uh, out what, to me we, one more time yeah we were talking about uh, how this may or may not affect uh, Russia. What about China? What, how are they going to be impacted by this? You see, a lot of Chinese buy real estate, and that's where they put a lot of their money into real estate. Sure, you're going to have savings. Um, banks are going bust right, left, and center. I predict probably maybe two to 300 more banks worldwide will shutter their doors here whether that's either from a takeover or whether it's a bailout or whether it's an outright bankruptcy. That's kind of a number that I've been uh, speaking around in the uh, financial uh, community. But when it comes to China, you got to remember China is really kind of what they're doing to Russia. The United States have basically shut the Americans off from that banking system. Now, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, that meeting that uh, is going to be happening with Xi and Putin, I have a feeling, and this is just speculation, everybody, but I have a feeling that there will be a lot of new branches from the, either the Bank of China or ICBC Bank heading to Russian cities in the near future. That's kind of where I think we're going to see this disconnect from this banking system. And I think there's going to be two systems coming up here, two really different systems, one that may attract people to Southeast Asia and lean towards China and the RMB. And then we'll have the collective West five eyes go to the American side. And I think there, I think we will finally get that disconnect, which I think is great. It's competition, world competition. Back to you. Thank you. Uh, Angela, you, do you have anything to add? Uh, it's cause it's the same question. You're, you're also in China. Yeah. What, well, what do you think about that? 
Well, the, you know, uh, credit Suisse poses a systemic risk. I mean, if uh, credit Suisse falls, where it was to fall, well, you know, this is, uh, it's going to be, have a, would have an impact everywhere. Even though, even though we see the, the world decoupling, uh, you know, especially Russia, but I think the impact would be worldwide. But again, you know, I, I doubt that the, the uh, Swiss National Bank would actually let down Credit Suisse. It's impossible. Just there would be so much. I mean, such a huge impact on the Swiss economy and, and worldwide. Uh, I just want to add. Uh, we had this discussion with Alex before on the gold, uh, and it's important to 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 give precisions. You know, if you if you want to be extra safe, just buy physical gold. Uh, at least that's a that's a very good hedge uh, in in times of inflation, uh, very high inflation. Uh, I think, um, additional to that, I think this is, this is an interesting discussion. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Michael Hudson. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he was a gray zone and he's actually, he's, uh, he gives a very good explanation on when it comes, when it comes to the, the dollar hegemony. Uh, and, and, and the Ponzi scheme. It's important to understand, for people to understand that in reality, the dollar hegemony is a Ponzi scheme. The system of the U.S., the way they designed it, can work as long as you have countries or corporations that keeps investing into U.S. debt. Because in reality, it's like a Ponzi scheme. If you, if if people, countries, they stop investing into U.S. debt, then the whole system fall apart. So you see, uh, in reality. Uh, I think Russia and China very early on, probably uh, a decade ago, they already started, uh, quote unquote, declaring war on the collective West, not by weapons, not kinetic, but that was actually on the currency. What is happening, the sanctions, what you, what we saw those days with Ukraine, that's something very small compared to what they start, they started earlier on. What happened in Ukraine for Putin, for Russia, was actually an opportunity just to to push into uh, into uh, using rubles or other currencies to trade uh, Russian commodities, and and it was a way to accelerate the de-dollarization. So, so in reality, what uh, so when you look at the, the, the Ponzi scheme, it's basically there's a, the U.S. The, the USA they have a trade deficit. So they sell less than what they buy. Uh, and that trade co- uh, deficit can be only compensated by countries like China buying U.S. debt. But China has stopped. It's been, a, you know, they, they, they have a one trillion dollars of trade surplus, China. What does China do? Uh, they're dumping the, the U.S. bonds and they, they invest into tangible assets. Belt and Road Initiative. Why do you think there's a project of putting trillions of dollars over the next decades into the Belt and Road Initiative? That is the way for China that they, the China found to recycle its U.S. dollar trade surplus. This is why the collective West is, I mean, the U.S. is really mad about this Belt and Road Initiative because, because when you have so much trade surplus like China, you have to find a solution with that money. What do you do with one trillion dollar that you have of surplus every year? And this is why, you know, the U.S. is at war with China. You know, it it comes down always to money at the end of the day. If China was willing to do what what Japan did actually in 1985, you know, uh, you know, like keep on funding 
the the U.S. trade surplus by by buying U.S. bonds. Well, you know, they, maybe they would leave alone China, but China is not going against that. You know, why why would you have a lavish a lifestyle in the U.S. when when uh, just just because you you hold the 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 the, the global currency, you know, and and they stop that. And this is why we we are where we are now. You know, it comes down to money. Yeah, and I, I just want to point out, you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. The, the U.S. is so upset with it, they're literally uh, arming and backing terrorists to physically blow up projects and, and kill physically kill engineers working on it. Just so people understand uh, how how serious the U.S. is about this. Now, uh, going to you, Gonzalo, I want to continue with this this theme, the impact on, on China, Russia, but also we see Saudi Arabia, it's starting to pivot. And this, this has huge implications because of the petrodollar. Maybe you would like to talk about where that is right now at this time. Sure. Uh, the problem with the, uh, the United States, you see, uh, in, when it decoupled from the, from the gold standard in 1971, uh, because of the, the problems of the expenditures on the Vietnam War and on the Apollo missions, uh, that created, um, you know, and, and the United States no longer had the gold reserves to, uh, uh, face up to its obligations insofar as the dollar being backed by gold. Okay. Because the dollar was previously convertible to gold, uh, directly by the central bank. It was backed by gold. But see, uh, the expenditures was, were too much. And so the, um, Nixon administration in 71 ended, um, the, 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 uh, backing of gold. And so they found a solution to it, which was to have it basically backed by oil. What happened was that in August of 1974, just as Richard Nixon was resigning, his then Secretary of Treasury uh, cut a deal with the Saudis uh, that guaranteed that the United States would protect Saudi Arabia militarily and some other doodads here and there. But the Saudis promised that they would sell all of their oil in dollars and they would take the exceeding from those sales and invest them in treasury bonds. This was the start of the petrodollar because every country in the world needs oil for their industrial economy. And so if Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil producer, a largest exporter, started selling its oil ex- exclusively in dollars, then every other country in the world would need dollars to buy that oil. You see? And so the rest of the world started buying dollars in order to buy oil. If you produce something in Japan, say, and you get yen for it, well, you're going to need oil. And the oil is priced in dollars, so you're going to have to take your yen, sell them, and buy dollars with them. And so that's how the American economy has been propped up for the last, you know, 50-odd years. It's coming up on 50 years, as a matter of fact, in, in, uh, because this was in 74. And so this is the start of the petrodollar, okay? And this is how the American dollar has been propped up, because it's backed by oil. By way of Saudi Arabia, the other OPEC nations joined suit, and so here we are. Now, Saudi Arabia, uh, its current leader, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the son of the king uh, and is the de facto leader, and there's no doubt in anybody's mind that he's going to wind up being king at some point when his father dies, and he is a relatively young man. I believe he is 38, if memory serves. So he's going to be around for at least the next 20, 30 years. And so he is looking at Saudi Arabia's prospects with that kind of long-term vision. He sees the writing on the wall. Everybody realizes it, that the Americans are not a dependable partner. 
And so it's wise of him to start uh, pivoting away from the United States. And so he has been doing this geopolitically and economically. Geopolitically, this big announcement where Iran and Saudi Arabia are going to reopen their embassies in each other's countries, this is a huge move. And the fact that the Chinese brokered this deal shows that the Chinese are the ones who can actually bring bring peace and order into international relations because the American program over the last 20-odd years has been to sow chaos in the Middle East with everybody fighting everybody else to the Americans' advantage, whereas the Chinese are coming in with a much more conciliatory diplomacy to bring countries together. They succeeded in bringing Iran and Saudi Arabia together, and there's no doubt in anybody's mind that this uh, partnership between Iran and Saudi Arabia is going to increase, which will be to the mutual benefit of Iran and Saudi Arabia. And it opens the door for both these countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, to pivot even more decisively towards their good buddy, China, which brokered this peace. And the Saudis are doing this. They are starting to sell oil in, in Renminbi or Yuan or however you want to call it. And so they are pivoting towards China, selling more of their oil to the Chinese in uh, yuan, not dollars. Now, other countries are going to start following suit and people are going to realize, hey, we don't really need dollars. We might be able to get our oil in renminbi or rupees because the Indians, of course, they are buying oil from the Russians and they are marking it up and selling out this oil to foreign customers. Before the, the start of this war, they were um, the Russians were exporting to India something like 87,000 barrels uh, a day, I believe. And now it's at 1.3, 1.4 million per day. And so the Indians are start, starting to sell this oil and they're probably going to be demanding rupees pretty soon, if not already doing so. And so you see the, the oil as the backstop for the dollar is eroding. It's becoming a, a commodity that can be sold in multiple currencies that are not the dollar. And so that weakens dollar hegemony. Now, there will be a tipping point, a moment that there are so many people buying so much oil in other countries other than the dollar, that all of a sudden the dollar, everybody's going to ask themselves, well, why are we buying oil in dollars if the American economy is not involved? You know, I'm, say, I don't know, Thailand buying oil from Saudi Arabia. Why do I have to get dollars? Why don't I just buy with, uh, I actually don't know the currency of Thailand, but. Thai bot. Uh, yeah. Thai bot. Now, why don't they buy it just directly like that? And you, and you see the situation. All of a sudden, there will be a tipping point where all the countries in the world say, we don't need the dollar. And this will be a disaster for the American economy, uh, which is its prosperity and its military spending has depended so much on that foreign demand for dollars, you see. And so that's why the, the issue of Saudi Arabia pivoting away from the West turning decisively towards China, towards Russia. Saudi and Russian relations are extremely good. Saudi and Chinese relations are extremely good. Uh, just a few months ago, Saudi Arabia hosted uh, Xi Jinping in his first uh, trip in like quite a while. Um, you know, he, he went to Saudi Arabia. That was a clear message. That was basically saying, the Chinese saying to the Saudis, we want to do business with you. We want to have you as one of our most important strategic partners the way we have Russia as our, you know, one our most important strategic partner. And so you see the rest of the world is pivoting away from the West. And the United States, because of all its various um, escapades, if you will, 
it can't really do much about what Saudi Arabia is doing, especially because Mohammed bin Salman has the country so firmly in hand and the possibility of like a color revolution or some effort at destabilization of the Saudi um, uh, regime is just not really possible. And so, you know, all of a sudden the United States is finding itself friend, finding itself friendless and with other people using other currencies to buy oil, hurting the American economy. Does this answer your question? Yes, it does. And when you really think about it, what was the U.S. doing in the Middle East all of this time? They were destabilizing it and they, yeah. they surrounded Saudi Arabia with uh you know, they they created hostility between these nations, essentially surrounding Saudi Arabia with hostile nations. Uh, and even though those nations were were justified in their hostility, this was almost a, a way the U.S. was holding Saudi Arabia hostage. You know, keep the petrodollar going, or else we'll just uh, you know we we won't shield you from these uh, nations. And then what happened is China's going in there and they're stabilizing the region. They're giving Saudi Arabia and everyone else the the ability to move out from under this this specter of, of constant war and allowing them to do that pivot now uh because we're getting close to an hour i guess i want to go to this question and we'll start with alex uh if if that is happening if the petrodollar is uh disintegrating and and they have all of these problems nobody trusts the west and their financial system and their leadership role globally what does the united states do next. What do you think they're going to do next? Well, they're going to panic and they are panicking. Uh, they continue to panic when you see everybody do a bank run uh, and uh, down it within 48 hours. Like I said, at the start of the program, there's one door to get out and they are all trying to get out of the same door. The problem here is there's been failed uh, policies that have been continually happening with the government. You know, they're build back. I called it the build back bankrupt. Because it never really happened. Uh, that's the build back. I think uh, it was build back better plan that uh, the um, administration tried to bring forward for infrastructure. But here's what China does. China goes into these countries. All right. You need a loan. Now, of course, the Western smear campaign says, uh, you know, they're just going to throw a bunch of money in this country and make it broke. They're not going to be able to pay it back. The French. The British, they've had Africa for years to do something down there, and they never did it, okay? It fit to their uh, narrative that, hey, they were happy with the status quo. China rolls into town. Diplomacy rolls into town. Infrastructure rolls into town. Hey, you need a bridge. You need a hospital. You need schools. Yeah, but we can't really afford it. Oh, we got you, but we can't really bore. We'll finance it, okay? Um, and while you're at it, you need a railway, uh, you need some infrastructure, and let's connect it to this country that we already built for. Oh, and we got buddies over in this country that's connected it. And don't worry, uh, your port of goods, we got that covered too, and we'll make things easier for you to uh, ship goods. In America, we have an economy, I call it the Lego economy. That's right, you didn't hear that wrong, the Lego economy. Now, what I mean by that is, look closely the next time you hear uh Somebody in the United States or some of the unions talk about these car plants, okay? These big, oh, you know, General Motors and Ford and, you know, these are big, big um, companies that the politicians want to show that they get behind. These are really not manufacturing plants. These are assembly plants. So imagine 
somebody in China sends you a bag of Legos, whatever you want, let's call it tires and uh, a couple of doors and bumpers and whatever, and they ship it over to you in America. Well, the America, they make maybe the frames. Maybe they still do. And then you start assembling everything just like it's Lego. Now, the Americans complain about this trade surplus, but they are ordering in. Read, follow me on this, guys. Ordering in all this product, Lego, assembling it, and then shipping off to other countries. Now, that doesn't get counted as an export. So we have a lot of country, countries that are dependent. It could be anything from cars to bicycles to, I mean, I don't know how, about you guys, but I haven't seen too many TV or mobile manufacturing plants in North America uh, the last time I was down there or refrigerators. And if they are, most of them are being pretty much shipped from here, assembled in the United States and then to the, uh, you know, the commercial market. The problem with this is, when you start screwing around your supply chain and you start being mean <laughs> and you start throwing tariffs in there and you start screwing around with the global economy, the lights can quickly go out on you because what used to be one of the only markets for China has moved over. We have the International Land Sea Trade Corridor, which is connecting all of Southeast Asia, which used to take 45 days to get cargo into countries like Thailand takes 20 days, no custom clearance. It can be done in four hours. Now, are you going to export something on a tanker ship uh, from halfway across the United States and it's going to land in your port 45 days? That used to be the game in town. But now we're seeing the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, the important markets that are really, the Chinese are really branching into these markets now. When you lay 60,000 domestic tracks of high-speed rail through your country, and then you start connecting it to the Lao, to the Myanmar. These are countries, and you know this, Brian. These are countries that the Americans are just dying to destabilize with NGO organizations. That's where I'm going to hand it back to you because you know exactly where I'm going with it. But yeah, that that's that is a great explanation, Alex, and I'm and I'm glad you talked about that because that that was basically going to be my what I said. They're going, they're desperate, and they're going to start destabilize they you know what whatever they have left that they're good at which is destabilizing and destroying um angelo where do you uh, what does the u.s do now where do they go well yeah i think they're desperate i think uh what the the downfall could be really really bad for the u.s uh, i just hope that there's a bailing out at some point that they sit down there's a you know we need adults in the room um, I think also there's something very interesting what happened since there's uh, this confrontation of NATO against uh, Russia. What we found out is that uh, those concepts of GDP are comp co completely false. You know, I think uh, I think we need to review what is a real GDP. There's a I would call it two adjustment. Uh, one adjustment is a purchasing power parity. So when you do that, that calculation, you find out that actually Chinese economy is bigger than the U.S. Now, if you talk about the real economy, because I, I think that Western economies, because they're service oriented and because of inflate, they are very inflated. You know, you have lawyers that they makes too much money. You have uh, healthcare, which is completely inflated. Uh, the real economy is smaller than what they say. Uh, I'll give you an example. Healthcare in the GDP of the US, it, it accounts for 18%. In China, it's 6%. Uh, 
what the difference is inflated. It's completely inflated GDP. So if you look at manufacturing, you have in China three times the manufacturing that you have in the US. So we need to be extremely careful. Uh, so now the, the collective West is in reality, reality much smaller and not as powerful than what we might think. Uh, I just want to add one more thing. Just, you know, uh, when, when we talk about, you know, the, I mean, the allies of the, of the US, uh, it's interesting. These days we found out that, you know, you have, you have uh, countries that were allies for a long time. They actually, they shifted completely overnight. But, you know, think about Saudi Arabia. So 50 years of protection and so on by, from the US in exchange of the, the petrodollar. Well, in 2021, Russia signed an agreement between Russia and Saudi Arabia for protection. So they, you know, so we talk about a possible color revolution. I don't think it, it would happen because we might see actually the same as we saw in Kazakhstan, having Russians going to into Saudi Arabia and, and calming, you know, just just protecting uh, uh, Mohammed bin, Sal bin Salman. So Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, they shifted. You know, Iran, they used to be an ally of the US, you know, under the Shah of Iran, you know, they were allies. Uh, Turkey, Turkey, the US did a coup in Turkey in 2016. Uh, you had Iraq, uh, you know, not so long ago, Iraq fought for the collective West against Iran. So you see, there are many countries that see that, that the US, you don't have a long-term friend, but it's just a tool. Well, when you see China, the relationship that China has, the relationship that Russia has, just think about it. Russia has been a long-time friend of India. Why India is not turning its back on Russia now? Well, you know, they've been friends for 40 years. They're not going to change that. Syria. They were friends when the, when there was a Soviet Union. You know what? Syria got in, into trouble. Russia was there. Would you trust the same when it comes to the US? You gotta be careful. You know what? Uh, <laughs> that it's, it's not a trustable partner. And, and the, the, the global south knows that. So they'd rather, they'd rather in Africa, they'd rather have Wagner, you know, there than uh, having the French or, or, or or any countries from the collective West. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up about the GDP, and I think we're seeing that right now, the, the U.S. proxy war against Russia, uh, their industrial base, the West's collective industrial base is unable to supply weapons to Ukraine on the scale necessary to match or exceed uh, Russian firepower. I think that's very interesting. And that's when all all of this, uh, you know, this is this is it, you know, when, you have this puffed up uh, economy and you're pretending that it's much bigger than it really is. But when it comes down to industry, that's that's when everyone can see through it. That's when the, the illusion starts to fade. Uh, Gonzalo. Yeah, there's, there's Warren Buffett has a saying that you, you can only tell who's swimming naked when the tide pulls out. It's a very wise saying. And the American economy has been swimming naked for 40 years, I would argue. Because it completely deindustrialized, and like to Alex's point, yeah, it created this Lego economy where you have parts manufactured overseas, brought to the United States, just put together, and ta-da, we have an addition to the GDP when that's not really the case. 
Well, um, uh, you know, to Angela's point, he, he thinks that, you know, at some point there's going to be a change in American leadership where the adults will enter the room and take over. I, unfortunately, am not so, um, so. Well, no, no, I, that conclusion. It, mm-hmm. no I, I don't believe it. I, I don't believe it would, it would happen. It's just impossible. Yeah. You know, you, that's yeah, what yeah, needs yeah, to happen, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, democracy has been hijacked. It's not democracy. I think it's a joke, no. you know. I no, think we need to. Yeah, we, we have basically an incompetent leadership class. And, and look, I went to the, uh, to university in the early nineties and I, I went to uh, a university that produced a lot of people who wound up in positions of, of leadership in the various sectors, law, medicine. I mean, I was recruited by, in gold, by Goldman Sachs when I was a senior there and, uh, because they recruited there because Hank Paulson was there, was from Dartmouth. But the point is that, see, um, that leadership class has been incompetent for several decades now. And what has happened is that the truly capable people have essentially died out. And so you have a, a bunch of people who are running things who are very adept at uh, swimming through this social sea and climbing to very powerful leadership positions, but they don't actually know what the hell they're doing. And for people who are outside this particular ziggurat, this, this particular structure, they don't believe it. They, they don't think that people are this stupid. Oh, they are. They're incredibly stupid, surprisingly uneducated and parochial in their outlook and uh, almost having an impossibility of putting themselves in the shoes of the other and seeing uh, a particular deal, how the other would be affected by it. it. It's rather shocking when you start actually interacting with these people who are in positions of leadership. And so I personally don't think that the Americans are going to do anything other than panic and they're going to throw everything at the uh, at the wall to see what sticks. And it's going to be very, very ugly. Okay. And now clearly the Ukraine situation, the Americans at some point are going to realize that they cannot go in with boots on the ground. I mean, like, you know, the famous line from the princess bride, you know, rule number one, you do not get into a land war with Russia. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy. Uh, so they're going to eventually pull out and realize that this is just not worth it, especially as the military catastrophe that we are seeing unfolding. Uh, you know, blossoms fully and we see the scope of the losses and destruction and that there's no way for the West to prop up the Zelensky regime, which is going to end, you know. And so what I believe will happen is that they're going to turn their full attention to China. Uh, Brian, you, you yourself told me in a private conversation the amount of anti-China rhetoric that is coming out of the West is off the charts. It's yeah. bordering on open racism towards the Chinese. They are gearing up for a war with China. And this is my macro prediction that I'm, I've, I've said before and I'm happy to repeat. In 2023, at some point mid-year towards the fall, the West is going to realize that Ukraine is a lost cause. Let's pivot definitively towards China. And they're going to announce this with, with some sort of initial round of sanctions against China. And it's going to be a big brouhaha. And they're going to start on the uh, famous sanctions escalator metaphor that Alexander Mercurius came up with, which is very appropriate because once you're on that escalator, you can't get off. And they're going to have more and more sanctions against China, but it's going to be a replay of the sanctions against Russia that hurt the Europeans. The sanctions against China are going to hurt the Americans. And as the economic situation deteriorates further into 2023 and especially 2024 because of the sanctions against China, which would be are completely predictable that number one, that's what they're going to do. Number two, the damage to the American economy that these sanctions against China would inflict. Well, they're going to panic even more and they're eventually going to go for all out war with China, 
with no clear military objective or or way to use the military to fix the economic catastrophe that will be unfolding in the United States. And so what will happen is that there will be a war between the United States and China, I believe, in 2025. I think that a lot of people in positions of leadership are already gearing up for it, already looking forward to it. And I do not see a way out of this catastrophic destiny that the United States is leading the West into. I mean, this is, this is my sincere belief and I'm willing to, you know, argue it and, and defend this position because it's really, at the end of the day, it's always about people, the people in positions of leadership. Who are they? Are they capable people? Are they flexible people? Are they people who have a measure of humility, enough humility to understand the point of view of their opposing member, of their counterparty? If they don't have that humility, that level of empathy, that ability and basic competence, then you're going to see, uh, you know, a car crash. And so that's what I think that we're going to see. We're going to see a car crash. It's very predictable how it's going to happen. Yes, uh, Alex, yeah, I just want to throw in there because I I think I agree. I think that's what they're going to do. They know that this uh, financial and, and economic situation cannot be fixed and they see China surpassing the collective West, not just the U.S., the the whole West. And what they're going to do is they're going to figure, well, we're already done. We're going to wage this war against China, try to knock, try to level the playing field, knock everyone down back to zero. And then we'll maybe we'll have a chance to to reassert ourselves then because it's definitely not going to happen now. And, uh, you know, they're going to start a war. They're going to try to use their Navy globally to seize and block Chinese shipping and uh, I think China is aware of that. They're getting ready for it. Al- Alex. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, before I came on this program, uh, Brian spoke to me about uh, the finance part of this uh, conversation tonight. And I think a lot of people uh, from my channel that are watching tonight are a little bit confused because I've never actually really spoken about uh, this part of my life being a derivative trader on my channel. Most people just know me as a guy in media here in China. But I wanted to kind of, just let your audience know that um, there's some pretty dark things going on in these financial markets. And spending 20 years in Monaco, uh, I was taught by a very, very intelligent uh, trader from Switzerland. And he described to me in detail over a four-week period he was teaching. And I thought I knew everything about the financial markets. Really, I did. And as the explanation in the dinner got heavy, heavily in to what he was doing, I said, there's no possible way. How can this guy know more about these financial markets than me? I've been trading stocks, you know, prior to moving to Monaco for a good six, seven years. And he showed me a sign of the market that I would put money on it, that almost 99.9% of the common people that are in the stock market today have absolutely no idea about. Okay. That's the derivatives market. The derivatives market make the actual stock market look like a kindergarten class. These are the people that are making the shifts in these financial markets. I've been in it for now, I think, I'm going to say maybe close to 20 years trading these derivatives. Don't own a share. And I can, in, I will explain <coughs> that in another completely different video. Maybe I'll make one on my channel. I don't know. If people are interested, you can find me on my channel. Just send me a comment and I'll email you. What's happened here? is listen to listen to how crazy this is but it's true 
the derivatives market, and I'm going to give it to you in layman's terms for the viewers. It's basically like me or you or the average person will go and say, I don't think the Dow Jones or the S&P will drop 20% this month. Now, right now, right now, for that contract, or we'll call it insurance, right now, somebody's willing to pay you almost 20% for that. Okay, and that shows you the volatility in the market. Now, if it doesn't fall that much, you keep your, we'll call it premiums, okay? I'm not going to get too heavily into this, but here's what's happened in the United States of America. Guess who can't trade these derivatives? You, the Americans, can't trade them. I can trade them because I'm outside of the United States of America. You cannot. Now, why is that possible? Why don't they want the average person? Well, they'll hide behind it and say, it's very risky. No, sure, everything's risky. Hell, just investing in uh, Credit Suisse is risky over the last couple of days. They won't let you in that market. Now, there's ways around that, of course. You used to be able to go to Switzerland and open up a margin account that you could trade derivatives on these markets. But what did they do to the Swiss banking industry? They shut that down too, so that you can't, or the Swiss simply don't want you as a client. Okay, now as you see, you're being kept out of a game. There are other openings around the world, other countries that are willing to facilitate you in their banking uh, industry that will allow you to trade these types of products. But can you imagine this? 300 and some million Americans cannot write what I'll call insurance or derivatives even to protect their portfolio on their own market, yet everybody outside of the United States can. That right there shows you the house is rigged like it's never been rigged before. And trust me, the day will come. And I'm not throwing out conspiracy theories here, or theories here guys. 2008, February 5th, I nailed it within three days, okay? The March 20 sell-off, Brian, I don't know if you were there. I nailed that within about four days, okay? We are about to enter into very, 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 uh, I'm going to call them dark times for the next 18 months here. You're going to see some pops in the markets and some sell-offs in the markets, but you got to ask yourself, even today, what on earth is the S&P the, you know, the 500 highest companies by market cap. What on earth is it doing at 3,900 uh, when you have so many trillions of dollars in debt and bank failures? My prediction, this is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities. I'm going to put that out there again. But I would say realistically, if it was me or what do I analyze, the S&P should be trading at about 1,800 to 2,000. That's where I think it, we will get more of a reality of where this market is. And as all three of these gentlemen displayed to you today, there's inflation in homes, there's inflation in electricity prices, and for sure, there's inflation in your stock markets in the United States of America. Over to you guys. Um, Angela, you have any, anything to add or any last uh, closing um, thoughts? Uh, last thought, well, it's about leadership. Uh, uh, Gonzalo mentioned about the leadership in the U.S., which is completely helpless. Uh, I, I like to compare the leadership you have in the U.S. and in China. I mean, the gap is so big. 
so big. In China, you have uh, people that are STEM graduates, you know, science, technology, engineering. So you have like, I mean, you know, those guys are, those guys are very scientific, you know, and they've been, they've been working through the system. You know, you know, the things that if you, if you, from a Westerner's perspective, you look at them, you like, you know, it's, that's boring. Yeah, I mean, scientific people, they're, they're boring. They're not sexy. They're not going to tell you what you want to hear. In the West, look at their profile. You know, Macron, Sunak, Trudeau. I mean, they are like what we call in France, uh, garçon café. You know, like long, you know, like slim fit. You know what I mean? You just, uh, you know, they look good. They, you know, they're young. They, you know, they, they look dynamic and they are going to tell you what you want to hear. You know, and it's very emotional. See, two different cultures. You know, the West is perception, emotion. The East is rational. It's, it might be boring for foreigners, but you know, like you talk to a Chinese and you say, oh, I'm going to give you freedom, democracy, and so on. You st- uh, you talk about sexuality and so on. The, the Chinese is like, no, man, I want longevity. I want access to, you know, healthcare. I want to send my kids to school. Uh, I want food on the table. You, you're talking, you know, it's, it's so abstract. Just get real. And this is what the, the collective West needs to do. It's get real. What are you offering to your people? You know, Macron, he wakes, he wakes up in the morning. He's not thinking about what can I bring to France. He's not working for French people. You see, tomorrow, the next few days in France, you know, we have potentially a color revolution, I mean, you know, a revolution, not a color revolution, a revolution. People are tired. We've been lied to, you know, and, and, I, this, this one thing which is really interesting to compare. It's, uh, levels of satisfactions. Uh, Putin gets 80%. The CPC in China, 90 to 95%. You know, we are, I'm talking about the Howard University, MIT studies and so on. Westerners might not like it. It's boring, of course. It's boring, but they deliver and people there, they love it. So now we need to get, we need adults. We need the adults. The, the, the system is completely rigged. It gives an illusion of free choice. It's not. It's not. It's just more subtle. It's just more subtle. You, you get to vote, but you know what? You get to vote between two candidates that were pre-selected. They were pre-selected. You had no free will. In China, if you study the system, and that would be, you know, that, that would be for a, a separate episode, but it's far more democratic. But the thing is that we have 30, 40 years of brainwashing that we are the best and we are going to teach the world how to deal better. Well, you know what? What is the result? It, did it deliver? I mean, the tangible things? No, it's crashing. The wealth of the West has been built at the expense of the rest of the world. And those guys are waking up. And I just hope that when they wake up, that they are going to be not as bad as we were to them. Yeah, uh, I, 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 yeah, I like uh, just get real. I right, mean, this it's, is it's so strong, guys. You know, for, for the end, it's no, 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 it's, really, it's, it's that. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, I, I've been here. I saw China thirty years ago, three decades ago. And you know what? There's lots of things I don't like about China, but you know what? I talk to people, everybody's like, you know what? We love it. We know we get to travel abroad. We, our life is 
better. And I've seen, you know, I used to, I used, you know, I've been to villages in China. They had no shoes. There was no electricity, no shoes. I'm talking about very small villages. No electricity, no shoes. I was there. I saw it. Now I see it. I, I cannot recognize. It's going too fast for me. You know, Angelo, yeah. you make a very, very good point there about, you know, how the governments are set up here with the CPPCC and the NPC, similar to the Senate and the House in the United States. But also there's unelected people that are brought on to influence that have, you know, very, very smart minds with no political ambitions here in China, but are brought in to help the government understand you can't expect. Uh, let's look at the. Canadian politics, not the greatest example, but let's use it anyway. You can't tell me that people that are running for Canadian politics are there sitting there with, you know, master's degrees. Uh, you don't get paid that much to be a politician in Canada. So people that have those types of influences are not either involved in the government, but they are smart people that are needed to help the government understand what the decisions they are making for 1.5 billion people. And having that part of the MPC, or we'll call it the uh, you know, the, uh, you have the Senate part and the House part. We'll call it the, the, the Senate part or the House part, whatever you want, just to try to give you an understanding about it. That, that influence that comes into China is huge because this country is a massive, massive country and it needs these types of brains to help the government. You can't just say, okay, we'll elect these people and they go make the decisions. Um, true, they make the decisions, but they're making it based on even suggestions from intelligent people. I, the more I study, and Angelo, the more I understand the way that the this country here of China is moving forward, I have to tell you, I am glad I'm here. You hear people say, well, if it's so great, China, move there. Well, I did, and that's where I am. Well, you know, if, if Peter Zion were, were hearing this, you know, he'd have a stroke because he's saying that China is going to collapse any day now. So who's that? <laughs> Chang? Is that Gordon? No, Chang? Who's no, that? Peter Zion. Uh, oh, he, he's a, com- a geopolitical commentator who's an idiot. He's the bottom feeder of all the other idiots. He's eating the leftovers at the very yeah. bottom. No, and, and I'm bringing up Peter Zion to, to give a, a, a very important point, I think. It, the culture in the West is that nobody wants to face reality. People are happy to be fed lies and, and pretend that they live in, in, a, in a world that is much better than it actually is. And when you have a culture that is based on accepting lies about reality, then very soon you see the populace as a whole start to detach itself from reality altogether. I mean, look at various social phenomena that have happened, like uh, trans, for instance, that whole nonsense, or this notion of like, oh, yeah, I want to choose my gender, stuff like that, or, or choose my pronouns, or whatever the hell. All of this is detachment from reality, Okay. Whereas in the East, I'm talking about the Eurasian continent, including Russia and China. Sorry about that. I can't help it. Um, well, in, in those continents, in that continent, those countries, they look at things as they actually are. They don't fool themselves by pretending that the problem doesn't exist or that the problem is not a problem and it's just, you know, something magical and come up with magical thinking. No, in Eurasia... They look at the facts as they are and try to deal with them as best they can. In the West, they make up shit and they buy their own lies. And that's why you're, you're having the problem basically that the West is finally uh, crashing into reality. It's financial reality. 
it's industrial uh, reality, it's a military reality, it's political reality, and that crash is very, very ugly because they are finally getting to a point where their lies are no longer viable. I mean, when they started floating the idea that on some pleasure yacht they uh, blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, I mean, that was that was a clue. That was the most ridiculous lie, and everybody just laughed at their <laughs> face. But it, it proves my point that they think that if they they can lie their way through reality and nobody will notice, but that that's over. People now see reality, and the whole thing is collapsing. I think that's uh, really I'm myself. I'm sorry about this. Yeah, I just want to add one thing. What you mentioned just before, Gonzalo, this thing about, you know, why do you have those issues? And those issues, let's say, LGTB and so on, you know, just uh, why it was not organic, you know. Those are ways to divide people. They are distraction. They're distraction. You know, you don't wake up in the morning. Your main thinking is about that issue or your sexuality. I mean, that's a private issue. Who cares? Who cares? Don't just don't touch kids and animals. That's all, you know. Uh, so you see, those things are a way to distract people and divide them, you know. And then people put themselves into boxes. This is why. And we had this discussion with with, with Brian before. I don't like people putting putting ourselves when you put yourself into a box. Oh, I'm a MAGA. Oh, I'm a pro-Trump. Oh, I'm a communist. You know what? We all have a common enemy. They are the elites, the big corporation. They want us to be put into boxes so we fight each other. Why do you think in France they're fighting, they've, they've been fighting those politicians, they've been fighting each other, you know? And, and while they, well, who's the enemies is those, those globalists that are, are running the country that don't, don't care about France at all, at all. So, so, again, we need to be very careful. We have our opinions when it comes to society. Of course, lots of things I don't agree with those nuts because they're nuts. But we, we need to ask the question, why? And that's a way to divide people. So we need to be, to you know, Chinese, they, they, you know, some wisdom, Chinese wisdom. Uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned before, look for what unites us and put aside the differences. If people had that wisdom, you'd, you'd realize that 95% of Americans, they've joined forces together and toppled those, those elites that, that are selfish and, and greedy. Yeah, exactly. Imperialism works by dividing and conquering. And people think that, well, that's just something that happens over there in Asia or Africa. It can't happen here, but actually, in the United States, it most certainly is happening. The people running the U.S., the interests controlling U.S. domestic and foreign policy, they don't they don't see themselves as Americans. Americans are just another people to to conquer, and so they are. They're just dividing these people against each other. Uh, I, I I like this conversation uh, about being practical versus the fantasy world that even the the, the top uh, leadership class in the U.S lives in. They live in a fantasy world when you read their their policy papers and the the premise that the United States should should hold primacy over the globe when it is it represents a fraction of the global population, industrial output and everything else. That is a fantasy and then everything is built on top of that, which means that the foundation is soft and everything built on top of it is going to make it sink. 
Uh, and that's what we're watching. But unfortunately, the United States comes from a time where people were practical. They did build a, an immense, powerful nation. And that momentum is going to be used uh, as their last card. Uh, any, uh, maybe we'll just go around one more time and see uh, if we've got uh, final thoughts. Alex, you got any final thoughts before we wrap things up? Well, I, I just want to thank everyone once again for uh, having me, inviting me onto the show. What a, what a treat it was uh, when I told my wife I was coming on here on Friday night. She said, yeah, that's the show that you need to go on. And uh, what a, uh, I'm so blessed uh, to come on here and thank you for that. I just want to tell the viewers that, you know, living here in China, what I've seen here in the last few years, I've been coming to China for about 20 years off and on, a uh, little bit of business here and there, but living here has been a real eye-opener. And it's some things that I see that I used to enjoy in life, maybe in my uh, younger years in Canada, but where I saw a drastic change as society kind of, we'll call it, went down the tubes. I see cars here on a daily basis with no key marks, no broken windows. I see people walking the streets, being able to wear watches. I see people enjoying themselves in the parks without any crazy stuff going on. I see people enjoying sitting down in city centers, living their life in comfort and safety. I see people enjoying, uh, you know, going to the shopping mall or walking along the riverbanks where there's a clean environment looking up at a blue sky. And I have to tell you, being here in China really brought memories of my youth back of what Canada once was. And here, it's a country that is civil. People care about each other. Uh, if something uh, happens to that person, they're the first to be there. I have colleagues that uh, I'm around on a daily basis that say, hey, Good morning. How was your night the night before? This is a country that maybe in some way where we'll see a lot of people make comments saying, well, they're cut off from the world or they're censored from this and that. I have to tell you, when my mom calls me from Canada and says, did you see this on the news? I have to tell you, you know what? Most of the time I don't. And maybe it's for a good reason, because a lot of the stuff that goes on in the Western media, we can do without. And here's the beautiful thing. You have four people on this panel tonight with over 5,000 people watching internationally being able to share you a vision of what our life is like all around the world. Where else do you get that? Anywhere in the world. And once again, Brian and Gonzalo and Angelo, I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to join this panel tonight. Thank you, guys. Sure, thank you. Um, Angelo? Well, I just want to add one thing. Uh, it's uh, it's very counterintuitive for, for people. They, they, uh, when we talk about China like this, uh, uh, to be honest, I love my country more than ever, more than anything, really. I love my country. This is probably why I do this. Uh, we need to educate, you know, I mean, somehow we need to bridge this, this gap of knowledge. No, you know, China is a good place. If you, if you, if you knew, I mean, right now, Friday, all around China, nighttime, you know what they do? I mean, it's, it's, it's a common practice. You know, it's, it's something that people love it. You know, we might not love it back, back, you know, in, in the West, but they go, they go in big square and they dance and they, you should see, look at their face. They're happy people. They're happy. You know, uh, so, so, 
So th- there's so much to say about China. So I, it's more, you know, it's, uh, I love as much China as my country, but I just wish my country and people in my country, they would just learn more. Uh, because at least Ch- Chinese, there's one thing that they do. They, we, they know so much about us, our culture and our political system, our president and so on. Uh, in the West, what do we know about China? I mean, they, you know, uh, uh, the maximum that average Joe in the West knows about China politics is Xi Jinping. That's, that's all. That's all. When you talk to Chinese, I tell you, the average cab man, taxi driver, he'll tell you everything about French politics and so on. And this is what, what we say, you know, like, like Sun Tzu, know yourself and know your enemy. Well, we don't even know ourselves, our own system. We don't, you know, and, and we want to criticize China. Well, wake up. You know, that's what I want to say. Wake up. Uh, additional to that, I want to say, well, it's, it's a pleasure, you know, uh, just to be in, in this panel with you guys. You know, we, uh, I enjoy it, you know, and that's, that's why, you know, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't exchange this against, you know, Friday night, you know, it's, it's, it's my best Friday night. Thank you. Um, Gonzalo. Yeah, my final thoughts, um, they're a little bit all over the place, but I'll just say the following, uh, you know, short term, you know, the, the U.S. economy is in serious uh, trouble, the, the financial sector, but it's going to spread to the whole economy. And so short term, that's the thing to pay attention to. Uh, medium term, uh, the, the pivot of the Americans towards China to uh, battle the Chinese because they're going to give up the ghost here in Ukraine, realizing that it's a lost cause, and there isn't anything practical that they can do to change the outcome, which I believe, and I have thought since pretty much the beginning of this conflict, would eventually end in the military occupation of the entirety of what was formerly Ukraine by the Russian army. And they're going to split up the country, they're going to take some pieces that they want, and they'll leave a rump Ukraine state, and there is nothing the West can do about it, short of going into some sort of uh, uh, suicidal and pyrrhic uh, battle against the Russians, because for the Russians, this is they're in it to win it, because this is existential for them. Uh, and long term, I think that the West is going to go through a catastrophic decade, and there isn't going to be a leadership class that will be able to bring things back for many years. I would argue at least a couple of generations. I'm talking 50 years. Because the prosperity that exists in the West in the post-war period, that model is simply unsustainable, and it has been almost deliberately sabotaged by the people in charge who are so incompetent. And because of how they have so corrupted the educational system and the means by which they select the leadership class, we will not see capable people rise up in the West and take the helm, adults, people who are competent. We are not going to see that class for at least a couple of decades until all the garbage is flushed through the system of the educational system and the system by which the leadership class and the leadership cadres are selected in every area, in every sector of American or Western society. We're going to have to go through a horrible period in the West. And it's remarkable that I'm going to see a big chunk of this in my lifetime. I thought that this would happen probably after I'm dead. Uh, just because, you know, 10 years ago, if you told me that we were in this position, I wouldn't have believed you. But here we are. We're, we're staring at a conflagration with uh, the United States and China and a complete collapse of the Western economic industrial society. It's 
It is remarkable. This is this is end of the Roman Empire kind of thing. And I feel happy to be watching it from the almost the epicenter at this time of the conflict. So yeah, and Brian, of course, Angelo, it's a pleasure to see you as always. Alex, it was a pleasure to meet you. And uh, Brian, uh, Brian, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. You know, people don't know it, but uh, Brian and I once in a while will will just shoot each other a quick Skype message. Hey, let's talk for five minutes. You know, just to just to say hi, just to catch up. And it's like three hours later, we're still talking, like a couple of old maids. You know, it's a, it's really a lot of fun. So anyway, Brian, we, we are big fans. You know, I was I was thinking, Brian. You know, there's there are two people. I would I would just drop anything for if I'm doing something to go on your show is you and Galloway, and that's that's yeah, and you know how much I, I respect Galloway. So big respect for your work. Uh, uh, and again, you know, I I don't know if people know, but Brian has been working on on this for the last decades. So uh, you know, and yeah. he was around when uh, writing article under pen pen name. So big respect, uh, Brian, for what you do. Yeah. Well, I. First of all, I, I haven't done a, a panel like this before, but this was great. So I'm definitely going to want to do this again. I want to thank everyone for coming on and sharing your expertise because this is a, a topic that I, I'm not, this is not really my area of expertise, but I, I know the three of you have backgrounds in this and that's why I brought you on and you didn't disappoint at all. And I hope the audience learned a lot and uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. Uh, check the video description below. I've got Gonzalo and Alex's uh, links there. And then if you scroll down, you will find Angelo and, and other places you can find my work as, as well. Uh, again, thank you. It's Friday night. Thank you so much for, for joining me. And until next time, bye for now.